welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. In this episode, Jill and Emily taste two different wines. One that was fermented with native yeasts and another that was fermented with added yeasts. Emily talks about the difference between a sonata and concerto. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a playlist and wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Happy birthday, Ms. Reese. Oh, dear. It is, isn't it? <laughs> it is. We have, we thought about not recording today, and the subject matter was just too good. It's too good. And we thought, well, why not compare and contrast a couple of our favorite topics mm-hmm. um, on your birthday? On my birthday. <laughs> yep, yep. So I brought to the table uh, a... It's something near and dear to my heart, and it's talking about yeasts for fermentation. Okay. Um, I've been enamored with bacteria and (laughs) fermentation ever since. That's what got me into wine was... For real? Yeah. I I was like, uh, I I don't remember, in high school, and my mother allowed me to pick out the family Christmas wine. (laughs) Nobody drank wine in my family, so I was sort of like, what? I don't know anything about this, so I picked something... She let me taste it at the table, I think, and I I remember tasting it and thinking, this is awful. Wine is better when you age it. So because there was only like a half a bottle left or something, I corked it and I brought it upstairs and I like hit it (laughs) under my desk. And then I, you know, like five days later, I took a little sip out of it and I was like, well, this is turning to vinegar. And I wondered why that was. And then I was like, you know, back then we didn't have the internet. So I was like you know, looking in books and finding out why wine gets better and why wine turns to vinegar. And that was when I was like 15 or something. So. Wow. So here we are. I just learned something new about Jill Mott. And I am going to talk about yeast today. Love it. I'm going to talk about the difference between a sonata and a concerto. So comparing the two of those. Yep. And the reason we had talked about a little bit before, obviously today, like why Emily's going to compare these two. And yeah. I think, you know, with wine, terms are, uh, I, don't even, I don't even know if they're easier to understand. Obviously, this conversation with yeast are going to get, you know, a little bit in depth. But I, I, I think that in general terms, if you're not like in the classical community, but you listen to classical, I do think a lot of people wouldn't know if you were to ask them to define a concerto versus a sonata. So I, sure. I just think it's... Great that you've chosen those two. Yeah, those two are biggies, and those two are uh, some of the easier things to kind of wrap your head around. And so once you know the difference, you're like, okay, yeah. Can you just give us a like a little bit of a well, yeah, audible peep show? Like, what what is the difference? Just like in a one. Well, sentence. a concerto. Both have a soloist, right? So both have some kind of soloist standing there or sitting there, as it were, and. A a concerto has an orchestra behind the soloist and a sonata doesn't. Okay. A sonata is either one piano by themselves or it's a piano with an instrument. Yeah. Love the that. end. My part's done here. <laughs> Let's drink wine. 
Was, okay, well, Emily, so that's awesome. Emily, for her birthday, had to show up and say three sentences. Yeah, exactly. Done. <laughs> and, and I have pages of notes only so that I stay on topic. And I also, you know, I, I think when we get really um, scientific uh, for mm-hmm. my portion, I... I very open that I'm not a chemist. You know, I, I've done a lot of research, studied a lot, but um, the things I've gleaned from friends of mine that are, you know, in the field or that I've gotten online, um, you know, I'll, I'll do the best that I can to A, not go down a, a black hole, yeah. and B, to, to keep things relatively comprehensible. Yeah, so shall that we? Sounds good. Yeah, let's okay. let's do it. First of all, I want to know what wines you brought and and the just the easiest way for you to describe the difference between the two. So, in order to compare what yeasts do for wine, I wanted to bring a, a wine that was made from the same region and from the same grape. So I chose Gamay, the grape. I chose the Beaujolais region, which a lot of the grapes, um, most of the grapes in this case, um, hail from the southern part of the region. So they're a little bit softer. Um, it's, it, I think it's easier for one to denote what is spontaneous yeast and, and slash native slash indigenous. I'm going to use that kind of interchangeably. Those three terms, indigenous, native, and what was the first? And spontaneous. Spontaneous. Uh, Like you're not, you're not adding yeast. It's happening naturally from um, yeasts that reside on the grape skins versus conventional slash packeted yeast. Like literally that comes in a bag and you tear it open and dump it in the wine. Exactly. All right. And so sometimes you have to like rehydrate, you have to wake up yeast, just like you have to wake up yeast sometimes if you're making bread yep. in that you buy Red Star kind of thing. It's the exact same way, just more expensive and on a bigger <laughs> scale. Okay. Um, so I, I'm going to talk about the difference between spontaneous yeast and conventional yeast via two wines that are made relatively the same way. One wine isn't filtered, one wine is, but we, what's mostly, I think, um, the the precursor that is the most available to us is aromatics. It does influence texture. Yeast do in, influence texture slash flavor, but they it's it's the most I think percentage wise the highest percentage we can you know detect conventional or native yeast uh, via the nose the aromatics. Oh, okay. So to start off, let's talk about. The purpose of yeast. Yes. Yeast is around to ferment. It's to to ferment grape juice into wine. Okay. Obviously, fermentation, we can ferment vegetables, we can ferment tea, we can ferment beans, all kinds of cool things. Most people don't know that charcuterie, like good quality, like fermented meat, like Mm -hmm. salamis and stuff, a lot of those are fermented, cheese is fermented. But for the purpose of, obviously, this conversation, yeast allow grape juice to get converted into wine. And it's a it's a bioconversion. We're taking yeast and sugar, and that's the the byproduct is ethanol or alcohol. Okay. CO2 and usually some warmth of some sort. Warmth? So, what do you mean? Well it creates that that bioconversion doesn't create a liquid that is it, it's a it's a warming reaction, right? So whenever you dip your finger in a, a vat of fermenting grape must, mm-hmm. it's never like 50 degrees. It mm. has to be just like when you have to warm up your yeast to make or letting bread dough rise. It yeah. has to be in a warm environment. A warm environment will 
uh, allow for a fermentation to happen faster or allow for it to happen at all. Okay. So, um, and this happened in the mid-1800s, a gentleman by the name of Louis Pasteur, which is where we get pasteurization. Um, he was the dude who came across and dissected and made it known that yeast were responsible for this. Now, exactly how, you know, to the depth that we know it today, he obviously didn't know. Yeah. But he, he was able to say, this is the reason why, you know, Grape juice is turning into wine, which before it was sort of this thing of magic or just lore, just you know? Guest or what? Yeah. Just, yep. Yeah. Yep. And then, right. you know, packeted yeast happened very short thereafter, like very quickly. It was, I think, bread, packeted bread yeast were happening as early as the 1860s or 70s. So wine wow. yeast needed to be very shortly either before or after that. Um, maybe not as prevalently used as today f- yeah. for certain, but. And am I jumping the gun to ask if that's because they wanted to stabilize a flavor profile or? No, I think it was just predictability. Like okay. we want it, we want to be able to, to make wine and make wine even, not even consistently like a commercial product. It was just yeah. like, I don't, I don't want sometimes I have wine and sometimes I don't have wine. Yeah. Sometimes it goes to vinegar. Sometimes it stops fermenting in the winter when it's cold. Okay. So having conventional yeast came about as a way to just have a product that fermented all the way okay. and was predictable. All right. So cool. uh, before we get to drinking. Why? Because <laughs> I'm sick of talking. I okay, want to hear right. about sonatas and concertos. <laughs> all right. Um, well, which do you want to start with? Um, I, th- I don't know. Uh, let, me, let me talk about them both a little bit, actually, because... Um, the idea of a sonata or a concerto was certainly around in the Baroque era, um, but this is one of those kind of war horses of the classical era, which just to, as a reminder, it starts around 1750 and ends in the early 1800s. Again, the classical era was just a brief moment in time, really brief, and I tend to think, <clears throat> I have my own reasons as to why, but um, I think certainly part of it is that there were a lot of um, expectations and formalities in the classical era. And those have always existed throughout all of music, but in the classical era, it was just like a different level. And I think it just was not really sustainable, you know? Okay. Uh, But I chose one of each from the classical era. I chose a sonata from Mozart and a concerto by Haydn. So... Let's start with a sonata. I so, feel like it's very, it's your birthday. It's very pretty. It's a very pretty concerto or the, sonata, both, excuse me. Yeah, so. both are very pretty, um, the, but they're both very, they're both just so classical. They're both incredibly tonal. And by that, I mean, there's just, there's not a lot of chromaticism. There's, there's not a lot of uh, harmonic fireworks, shall we say, okay. in the classical era in general. There certainly are, don't get me wrong, but um, but it's just very listenable. Uh, and the the Mozart is beautiful. He wrote several violin sonatas. He was a violinist and a keyboardist as well, but he was a wicked gifted violinist and um, ended up writing. He wrote five violin concertos. All five are great, uh, of course, but he wrote them all when he was super young, for one thing. This violin sonata, so again, concerto has an orchestra with a soloist, a sonata is 
like salon music. It's an intimate thing. It's meant to pass the time. It was, mm-hmm. you know, something people did when they weren't surfing the internet in the 1700s. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like, <laughs> just what they did. They got together and played music. And so a sonata was a way for two people to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, so you always had a keyboardist on some type of piano. The modern piano wasn't a thing yet, uh, but it was, there was a piano. And then uh, just someone playing a flute or a violin or a a cello or really anything. I mean, you're not going to find trombone sonatas from the classical era. Okay. But you're going to you're going to find lots of string ones and some, you know, clarinets and flutes, lots of flute stuff. Okay. Uh yeah, and just two people having a good time playing music together. Now, a sonata generally speaking has three movements and so does a concerto. So they share that in common. And they also share in common that it tends to be fast, slow, fast in terms of the tempo of each movement. So a fast movement, a slow, you know, dramatic, whether in a beautiful major key or a dramatic minor key, something slow for the second movement and then something fast and sprightly and finale-esque for the third movement. So they share that in common. Again, as is the case with all classical music, you're going to find exceptions to those rules. You're going to find sonatas and concertos that have way more than three movements and ones that are one movement. So, okay. uh, But generally speaking, classical era, that's what you're going to find. But even in Mozart's sonatas, there's variation all over the place. Well, I can't wait to listen. Uh, do you want to taste wine before Of listen? course I do. All right, cool. So um, as we're tasting here, we're going we're gonna, to – I don't mind divulging the name of the, um, of the native, the spontaneous yeast because it, it's not only a fun wine, it's a good wine. Um, but the conventional yeast – is I, I picked like the poorest, and I don't want to poo-poo on that right, producer, right? right. But I, I did choose uh, from the same the same area, uh, the same grape, like I said. Um, but I, I just I wanted to get as far afield from the first example so you could really of course easy, no, easy, I love easy that. get there. So what I want people to understand is yeasts um, that ferment wine, there are many different types of yeast and they're, it's pretty much, the I, I would say, the same in terms of the types of yeast. So I'm going to say Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and then I'm going to say non-Saccharomyces strains like Cloacera, Haniospora, etc. They're all sort of around, not even sort of, they're all around on grapes, okay. soil, winemaking equipment. But the thing that makes it so, in my opinion, very important to, if you're trying to reflect terroir, where the wine comes from, mm-hmm. the ability to display that is born with yeast. Sure. So if everyone has, think of like a human being, okay? We go to China, human beings. We go to Namibia, human beings. Human but beings. are those people going to have an incredibly different, idea of how the world might be seen, how to go about their way in the world. They are. And with yeasts, all the yeasts that are on grapes are similar, if not the same, but there are different proportions depending on just even the vineyard that you're in that allows for, then if you're, depending on the grape you're using and what you're doing with it, that's like the main start to like the blueprint for that, that wine. That, and of course, you know, you know, are you irrigating? That has to do with grape growing. What what grape is actually planted? Duh. The soil, all that. Duh. Stuff. But, but if that's did, all terroir, though. That's that, all. That is. That's part of terroir. And if you didn't have yeast, 
you would, I mean, actually, I would say you'd have vinegar, but that's, you you have yeasts make vinegar, right? So you yep. have like yeah. this, and so do bacteria. But so, um, so I wanted to say that first. Um, well, and that reminds me, I don't mean to butt in here, but just that reminds me too of birds for some reason and how, you know, a cardinal here in the Twin Cities does not sing the same exact tune as, I mean, they sound different. Yeah. As a cardinal on the East Coast. Yep. They just sound a little different, even though they look the same and they have the same function. Yep. But they're, you know, they're different. And so many people, many viticulturists would say and winemakers would say, you know, if you have a Cabernet grape and I have a Merlot grape, right there we both have the first precursor of like different flavors. Yeah. But the next most important, most people would agree is that that is a proponent of a more natural approach is 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 your yeast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, shall we? Yes, please. So this first wine, um, the grapes are grown in uh, the southern Beaujolais area. So sandy-ish soils, a little bit of granite, but a lot of sandy soils. Um, it is done all with a with a native ferment, so indigenous yeast. And it's a relatively young wine, as many Beaujolais of this style are. Um, it's from a producer. His name is uh, Olivier Minot. And he makes a La Boutonche wine, which basically just means chug it. So these are both, <laughs> these are both like inexpensive chuggable wines, right? They're okay. not made in a style that's meant to be complicated yet. Sure, Hopefully sure. we'll be able to taste the difference between yeah. one that has native yeast like this one and one that doesn't. Love it. So one of the main points is for the longest time, most people would say Saccharomyces cerevisiae, like the main fermenting yeast, okay. is what ferments the wine dry. It's the driving force. It's the, it's the engine in, under the hood. Okay. Right? It's what makes the fermentation complete. Yeah. Um, and even though that's true in terms of a power standpoint, uh, even from like the 1990s, they've found that there are all these other yeasts that actually can ferment, can not only commence the fermentation, but they can also compete up to about 10% alcohol. And most uh, most people, if you just blindly ask them, oh yeah, native yeasts, how important are they? A lot of people will say, oh, they kind of fizzle out once fermentation really gets going, like around three or 4% alcohol as the juice is you know, converting into wine. Ah, oh, those kind of pitter out. They, they're not ethanol tolerant. And that's true to a point, but there are a lot of strands that they found that actually compete with Saccharomyces cerevisiae up to 10% and some t- in some cases beyond. And so that in and of itself So is, I'm sorry, so some yeasts die out or whatever when the alcohol gets too strong? That Yeah, and that yes, but the argument y- used to be pretty um, popular that after like a very low alcohol, yeah, you're only reliant on Saccharomyces. Okay, so it doesn't really matter if I'm pitching mine from, you know, I live in Minnesota, but I'm going to use a Barolo yeast from Italy, or you know, you're going to use a Pinot Noir yeast, even though you have Merlot because you want a lighter wine or something like that, right? Like, okay, but now a lot of studies are basically saying Emily's like, let me drink <laughs> like, my I just flipping drink wine. wine. <laughs> All right, so give give it a, give it a, give it a taste, and it'll mean more, obviously, when we. Smell taste this the one, other one. Taste yeah. the other one, and then come back. But because this one smells um, sharp, I say, but uh, but sharp, fruity, sharp. Cool. Like I know what you mean. Yeah. 
Like it might be acidic. Like it yeah. smells like it. Okay. Yeah. And I love how it smells kind of fruity. It also smells kind of floral. Yes. Chin chin to scores and pores. To scores and pores. Happy birthday, Emily Reese. Thanks, Joma. Mm. I love how it kind of tastes like the ground. Like it's yeah. fruity, but it kind of, there's yeah, a little mushroomy is, or something. Talk about scrappy. Yes. This is some scrappy wine. It is some scrappy wine. I get why they're like, chug it. Super fun. Super fun, right? <laughs> Interesting. Um, and okay. so, and just before we get to Sonatas, because I really, I would love to hear one right now. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about the fact that there are, um, there are flavor compounds that are present in grapes, right? Because grapes are made out of all kinds of different compounds that we can taste, but others that we can't unless they bind with something else. And sometimes what we're what we're learning through a lot of different studies, and some of those as recent as last year, that a lot of some of these compounds don't bind; they're flavorless, and they cannot bind to Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Okay. But some of these compounds can bind with non-Saccharomyces yeast that can render themselves flavorful. Wow. So if we just open up a packet and dump it in, we can make a really nice wine. Yeah. But we're all, you know, these, these beautiful little compounds that could reside in a grape don't they don't have that opportunity to do so? Yeah. Um, so that's I'll just leave it at that. Love it. Can, that's amazing. We can talk about the enzyme called glucosidase if you want. <laughs> well, I do want, <laughs> but I feel like we should really listen to a sonata. Oh, let's do that. Okay. Let's listen to a little bit of this Mozart. Mozart wrote this very late in life. I think I mentioned that a moment ago. Uh, 1787. And he died in 91. 1791, of course. Uh, So, and he was only, you know, 34 or something like that when he died. 37. I can't remember now. I'd have to do the math because he was born in 1756. Thank you. I would have known that. (laughs) <laughs> Just so we're clear, I would have known that. It's true, you would have gotten there. Of course you would have. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, he didn't live too long, but um, he was crazy, uh, crazy fella. Um, so this was late late in life, and and it's just a really lovely sonata. Just, again, three movements. Um, we're going to listen to a recording with a violinist named Hilary Hahn. I admire her quite a bit. She's uh, wonderful. Just for the record, this is in A major. 
the accompanist or collaborator, as they sometimes prefer being referred to. Oh, okay. Is uh, Natalie Zhu. listen for in something like this is a, a very deliberate interaction between the two instruments. You know, maybe some call and response, maybe maybe the violin does eighth notes while the piano does whole notes and then they flip or something. You know, I mean, there's just interaction and play between each other. That's a little bit of that sonata. It's very lovely. The the second movement too, and we'll hear we'll hear just a little bit of that in a second as well, because it's um it's very long. It's a very long, slow movement, which is a little unusual, but it's it's still really pretty. Oh yeah, I yeah. thought it was so beautiful. I love yeah. listening to it. I really wanted to talk about um Hania Spora and Cloacera. It's a it's a group or a genre of yeast that they're part of the non-saccharomyces strand of or family, I should say. And it's been it's been proven um, that they have they produce like these enzymes and these aromatic compounds that I'm and I'm gonna quote expand diversity in wine color and flavor, which wow. you know, and maybe it takes expert tasters, maybe it doesn't, but I think when you taste these two wines, I'm excited to hear what you think because a lot of t- in a lot of instances, if you set the stage and you don't need to tell people what is more complex because that defeats the purpose. But if you put two wines in front of people and say one of these is, is does have the edge on the other in terms of um, textural complexity, et cetera, you'll notice that a, two, a taster that doesn't like doesn't drink wine a lot or doesn't isn't really in tune with their senses, perhaps, that they will choose the wine that is, has the native or the indigenous yeast ferment as having a more um, textural palate or more mm. aromatics. And it doesn't mean it's a better wine. It's just, it's, it's incredible how noticeable that is for people. If you just say, pick one of these two and let me know which one you think has m- more of that, that edge. Mm. Um, they, it's proven when they, when they see they've, you know, been able to track, thankfully, to to modern day technology. As much as I like to poo poo technology, in this case, it's like great. Um, <laughs> that uh, fermentation pathways, like they're really, really unique with um, Haniaspora and Cloacera, um, and and they're obviously one of like I think there are. I, I I'm just gonna. I know that I'm gonna be wrong here, but it's like upwards of forty different types of non Saccharomyces. Yeast okay. that are in a ferment, and again, the Saccharomyces—that's um, the number one dude, right? That usually that carries dog. you to the end. Yep, yeah, yep. okay. or the one, the, the one that everybody thinks is the most important. The, yep. Okay, um, it's sort of like the quarterback. Think gotcha. of that. Yep, Perfect. everybody talks about quarterbacks. Perfect always analogy. the MVP. Yeah, and in the end, it's like, but if you didn't have the center, 
Yeah. And if you didn't have the kicker, mm-hmm. you know, you can make touchdowns all day, but if your defense is great, nobody can yeah, on the other team can can acquire yeah. points, right? So, yeah. Yeah. um what I want to focus here on is you know, the other wine we thought, oh, yeah, it smells like kind of I I thought undergrowth, you said sharp, you know, we agreed it kind of smelled mm. acidic, dark fruits for sure, more yeah. than but kind of all over the place, zingy, you said scrappy, which I love that definition so much. Yeah. Um so this is from a quite industrial producer of wine in the area. Um, In the area of Beaujolais, which is in France, correct? Yes. I mean, it has such a French name. How could it not be from France? Beaujolais. Beaujolais. So we're in... I love you, French. (laughs) French speakers, I love you. So we're in in the south... Uh, eastern, but a little little further north than southeast, um, but we're on the eastern portion of... um, Central Southern France. <laughs> the best way I'm going to go. Some some people link uh, Beaujolais to to Burgundy, um, but when you smell the wine, uh, what do you what do you smell? Plastic. It totally smells like plastic. It smells, like, and I'm not just saying. It smells like um. It smells like a new like a gym mat. Remember when you were playing yeah. gym in. Like when you got the mats out when you're in elementary school. Sure, and freckle some Kool-Aid around in there or some Jello, yeah, to make it fruity. Jello, and, I get. Yeah. And that's one thing that's really common with conventional yeast wines is that they have these sort of fruity esters, like aromas to them, mm-hmm. but that are really sort of like fakey. Yeah. You know, like Jolly Rancher Jello. Yeah. But they don't seem like that if you drink them on their own. Right. You know, if you were to buy this, it'd be maybe you know, acceptable if you're grilling and you just want to tip something back in a tumbler or something or whatever. But mm-hmm. when you ha- when you compare and contrast them, it's it's a difference between like top forty and independent radio. Like you yeah. can just hear the difference, and it's yep. not like one is better than the other. You just well, <laughs> I mean, I know which one I think is better, but you know, I'm just trying to be diplomatic here. Yeah, people. I know, I know, I get it. So take hey, it. let's try this and tell me what you think about the the palate, like how just how it feels. You okay, know? there was something to do really quick. What? Dump that out. So notice how, how that feels. It's very plain and boring, just so we're clear. And now just feel. I mean, this just Dimension. has life. Yeah, it, ha- it tells a story. Yeah, for sure. I used to hate, okay, let me just say, I just. Go, Emily, I used to go, seriously Emily, go. just hate you guys for saying that kind of stuff. <laughs> But it's so true. Yes. You know what I mean? Total, this wine tells a story. This, is, this wine is like, hello, how are you? This is where I'm going to take you right now. Hope you enjoyed it. Later. You know what? That's mic, what this wine just mic did. Mic drop, scores and pours is over. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm no, just kidding. Because we just switched, right? She poured the, the one that we're not going to name. I took a drink of it. It was like one of the most boring wines I've had in a long time. And then you put this back in here and the spice is suddenly back in my life. And here's the one of the things is um, when we do the Haniospora, Clochera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? The list goes on and on and on. There's an increase. One of the main things is there's an increase. That's not true. Not main things because there are like thousands of main things. And other also right now we've just probably touched two percent of the iceberg of what's available to us in terms of being able to actually decipher what these yeasts bring to the program. Um, We know that there's an increase in what's called um, benzenoids, and benzenoids are what give us 
floral, some floral component, some spice component in a healthy way, geranium component where hmm. maybe you would otherwise say, oh, this is a, it smells like raspberries or it's, it's, it smells like blueberries. When you are using native yeast, you get these sort of these aromas of like a garden in ways you might not know, I've, you know, tomato, vine, hmm. stuff like that. And not that, I mean, yeah. that's a, there's also a compound that's in kiwi mass-produced Sauvignon Blanc too, so let's yeah, yeah, try yeah. to, but anyway. So, by kiwi, you mean New Zealand, just just to translate. Yeah, that's for, true. Yeah. That's true. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's an increase in a lot of different um, compounds because of using a spontaneous or a native sure. ferment, which is sure, just makes me really happy. So I remember you telling me about a week or so ago that you can go to like a food supply store or maybe even a grocery store and literally taste yeasts off the shelf, right? Where did you tell me you can do that? Or maybe a wine supply store? Or As- it was acids. Oh, acids, you, you can my go, bad. You okay. can, but I mean, you can do yeast too. You could go and add... Um, you could take Welch's grape juice, yeah, and you could go buy Barolo yeast, Pinot Noir yeast, Montepulciano yeast, and Cab yeast, ten sixty yeast, all the numbers, and yeah. you could like do little tests, and after seven days, taste them, and they'll all taste different. They are predictable, you know. They're they're made in a way that it is to get a desired result, predictability. So should we get back to this sonata that's beautiful? Yeah, man. Well, I mean, we could talk more about the sonata. We could also go straight to the concerto. Go to the concerto. Uh, The concerto I chose, look, there are hundreds of famous concertos, whether it's a piano concerto, so the piano soloist playing with the orchestra, you know, trumpet concertos, violin concertos for sure. Uh, It's loads of violin concertos from the uber virtuosic technical ridiculous fireworks violin concerto playing to something like the Samuel Barber which was a little more reserved and we heard about in our B-sides episode mm-hmm. that got actually criticized for not being virtuosic enough right or difficult okay. enough so you know there are all kinds of concertos and I mean I could just list dozens just off the top of my head like listen to this one listen to this one listen to this one listen to this one the reason I settled on the Haydn was because it is a very super typical concerto uh, that starts, first of all, in the classical era, a lot of concertos started, like the soloist is out there on stage with the orchestra. The orchestra plays the what's called the exposition, which is the opening section of this concerto. And then the soloist joins on the second time through that, basically. So the soloist just kind of is thumb twiddling for the first several minutes of a concerto in the classical era and beyond. But uh, then Beethoven kind of shook things up, as he did uh, in the early 1800s. So this particular concerto from Haydn is before Beethoven did all that shaking up. And so what you hear at the beginning is just orchestra. There's no real indication that there's going to be a cello soloist at all. You just think this orchestra is going through its material. And he wrote, you said that usually in a sonata or a concerto, the composer was writing most of the time for someone. For sure. So this was written for a cellist, right? That was part of that 
group of that noble family he was working for. The Esterhazy family. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, to be fair, pretty much really almost all the time a composer wrote something they're writing for someone. True. Okay. I mean, so that's huge. Um, but some of the things that you hear in the in the certainly the first movement of a standard classical era concerto is that opening with just the orchestra playing, no soloist, and then at some point toward the end of the first movement, maybe even the second movement and the third movement, there's going to be something called a cadenza, where the orchestra they'll hold on this chord and it's always this one specific chord inversion. It's a one six four, which. What is that? Oh, a one six four is so. Let's say we're in C major. So C is our most important note. That's what we call tonic C in C okay. major. C is home base. And if you put, if you play a C major chord with a C in the bass, that's a really strong, stable sound. Yep. If you play a C major chord with an E in the bass, it's a little less stable. And if you play a C major chord. With a G in the bass, it's incredibly unstable, and that's called a one six four because it's the inversion. I can explain okay. what the numbers mean. It's not. It's okay. Screw it. Uh, but <laughs> I mean, it's it's important. It's just counting. It's all math, right? Okay. So the six four. So so what the orchestra does by landing on that very unstable chord is letting the listener know we're not done yet. Just chill for a second. Hmm. Here comes some really amazing fireworks from the soloist. Oh, cool. Now, sometimes the are composer... Listen, are we going to listen to that? We are. Yes. Sometimes the composer will write out, note for note, the cadenza that they want the soloist to play. But usually in the classical era, that was supposed to be improvised, right? There was, improvisation was a huge part of, of music performance in the Baroque era, classical era, less so into the Romantic era. Uh, so it was just like, you know, it was kind of... You wouldn't really know. Like, am I going to get a cadenza, or do I have to write one myself, or whatever? Okay. So anyway, um, that's th- those are two two kind of constants in in the constants in a concerto from the classical era. Big long orchestral introduction with no soloist, and then you get a cadenza at some point. So well, let's let's yeah, Haydn. So just an orchestra, just doing its orchestra thing, you know. We're a long ways away from hearing a cello soloist. The other thing I gotta say that I love so much about Haydn, it's just joy. They're just still going. Just orchestra. No soloist yet. A lot of winds. What is it? A lot of winds. There's some. O- there are a couple of oboes. And who who else is playing here? Oh, I'm sure there's got to be flutes in there. Horns. Yep. They're there. I'm sure there's bassoon. Yeah. Probably very typically classically scored. Yeah. There's not going to be trumpets. Here's cello. Finally. 
wonderful cellist named Jacqueline Dupre, British, uh, gone now, but highly recommend anything she recorded. It's magic, isn't it, when someone teams up with the instrument that was meant to be, you yeah. know? And I, I think that a lot with, with if you're smart enough as a winemaker to just let it be, you yeah. know, like let, let your grapes do their thing. Yeah. Of course, yes, the hand is going to intervene. She's got a bow. Yeah. She's got some strings. Yeah. But, and, and she's got, she's following along, right, to music and a yeah, conductor, yeah, yeah. but she's also... There's a part of her that is there. So much intuition there. And yeah. I think that that's a, a great comparison I didn't think was going to happen. Yeah. That, you know, yeast, yes, you need to give them the right environment. If it's if you put them in a freezer, they're not going to ferment. And if you, you know, yeah. put them in the hot sun, they're not. But if you just give them the right environment, those yeasts will adequately, sh and you're clean enough, you know, hygiene is important. It will just show it's meant to be shown um yeah so good Jack Jesus Ray, man. just her tone just listen to the beastly sound she gets out of that cello so what I would I mean, love it's just to, what I would love to do while we're doing this do yeah. you mind giving me your glass no of course and I'm gonna pour a little bit of this and then this flat stuff and we're gonna put your put the good stuff in yours yeah we're gonna we're gonna taste them very quickly side by side while we're listening to her solo. Just yeah. while we listen to her solo. Okay, ready? Taste yours. Ugh, I just don't even like the smell. But don't even smell. Just quick. Okay. Unreal. Right. So we just each shared a quick sip of of both wines. Mm -hmm listening to the music and granted we try not to do it too often where you're like drawing these very tactile yeah. similes to an audible notion yeah but man when it happens it's pretty powerful it is flipping really cool it is so one interesting thing to note about conventional versus indigenous yeast is even as far back as the 50s and 60s there were studies done to show the positive effects of these non-saccharomyces yeasts. Really? However, what those studies also showed was how high volatile acidity levels could be. Like volatile acidity, oh. like think of um, nail polish remover, yeah. something you don't necessarily want in wine, but it's also like salt in a cookie, right? If you're going to have a cookie recipe, you're always going to have a touch of salt there, mm -hmm. um, unless you're in certain European countries that don't use salt in your baked goods, which, you know, hey, whatever. Um, usually, I don't know, as human beings, sometimes we're, we focus on the negative before we focus on the positive, and maybe a lot of people read that and thought, I can, I can buy this packet, it'll guarantee me to get to, uh, to, get to point B from point A, without running the risk of, you know, having volatile acidity or, you know, all these other faults that could come from non-clean winemaking, you know. Um, and so I, I saw, you know, when I, what I've tasted, what I've read, and I, I say I saw I wasn't born in the 50s, but wines I've tasted coming out of the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was really at the end of like the 60s and 70s, what I've tasted, what I've, you know, 
interviewed friends of mine that were, you know, living back in the wine business in that day, and and then just things that I've read is when packeted yeasts were like not even at their prime, but like up and coming. You know, For people sure. were experimenting with them. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's so in line with what everything was going on in the fifties and sixties. You know, it just was all about simplicity and overindulgence. Yeah, and and, and another thing to to mention is now that there are so many producers like Olivier Minot and thousands of others, thankfully, around the world that are showcasing natural yeasts, an issue is that I can use indigenous yeast and I can sulfur very low mm-hmm. on low levels to try to highlight my terroir, where I'm from, the place I'm growing grapes or something. But I can use what's called DAP, um, which is a diammonium hydrogen phosphate, which is a yeast enhancer. Okay. So, and I remember speaking to a really cool winemaker um, who's out of uh, the Napa region, um, and he was telling me in Heidelberg, he was like, yeah, you know, we stopped using DAP like five years ago, and it's just like made our wine so much better. And I was like, this was six or seven years ago. He's like, I'm like, DAP? What the hell's DAP? <laughs> and he, he's telling me, you know, that it's this, it's basically like a, it's a yeast enhancer that increases um, the ability for na- non-saccharomyces yeast to survive and okay. flourish. So you can, now you can technically be this natural winemaker. Yeah. But you use DAP. Yeah. So it's like, like giving the other yeast a little Red Bull. Yeah, exactly, which is like, (laughs) you know, good for you for doing all these things on the spectrum of of natural wine, but then you're using a, you know, now you're the Mm -hmm. defensive lineman that's using steroids. It's not cool, (laughs) you know what I mean? So, um, I don't know, just to throw that out there too, that uh, it's good to obviously ask your local wine shop, ask your local sommelier, you know, what type of yeasts are being used and et cetera, but know that I guess I don't want to say like travel to the winery to find <laughs> out, but I mean it, it. There, there, there is a small percentage of that happening in the yeah. quote unquote natural wine world, where you know you would know that if you knew the winemaker, if you knew how to re- ask those yeah. questions of the yeah. winemaker without making them feel like you know putting them on the spot kind of thing. So right, I don't know. right. Just know that's around. No, I had no idea that they could because I've I've been curious. Like I remember when you first. When I first started to know you and you were talking about natural wine and how like open-ended that term really is. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's interesting to hear how they do kind of pull strings here and there. It's just like or- still be considered that. Oh, of course. Organic cheese curls. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, organic sandwich yeah, cookies, right. it's all right. over the place. You know, know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. like, and think of, I have, I was just in my local co-op and it was, I was going to buy organic, I think it was, they were plums, and yeah. they were from Argentina. And I was like, WTF? Like, isn't that sort of counterintuitive? Yeah. They're organic, but what about that carbon footprint? You know, like something yeah. I try to pay attention to. So, Oh, meaning they had to get here from Argentina. They had to get here. Yeah. So then am I, is it better to buy conventional, but then it's they come from next door? From yeah. a dude who doesn't use pesticides, but he's right. not organic. And yeah. I don't want to go off on a whole nother tangent, but it's just to say that yeasts are very important, of the utmost important, but know that mm-hmm. there are other things in there that are like people are adding to enhance Interesting. Interesting. I had to, when I was working in a winery, I won't mention where, 
or with whom. But I had to use superfood to add to our already packeted yeast. Is that like miracle Grow kind of shit? Yeah. Yeah. So I would add, I would, Just I would rehydrate and- a Barolo yeast for our X grape that wasn't from Barolo, for sure. I wasn't working in Piemonte at the time. <laughs> and I was rehydrating all these different yeasts and wondering, like, why are we doing this? And then, like, four days later, I would need to go put superfood in it. That's what we just kind of all coined it, that term. Yeah. But uh, an enzyme that helped to make sure yep. that fermentation would kick off. And mm-hmm. I was like, why are we... We're already using packeted yeast. <laughs> the grapes are picked at like ultimum ripeness, like 26 bricks. Like, why are we adding What does that mean? Like, really sweet. 26 like, bricks? Almost rotting. Yes, okay. it's a lot of sugar. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. We won't go into density. Do you want to hear a cadenza? I do. Let's hear it. So, let's just, together, we're in... This key, C major, this is our key. So the the strings are going to, the, the like high violins are going to end on that note. They're going to be playing this note, but the bass will be here. Okay, so so the violin. Your face was so happy. I know. At that well, that's because the violins actually ended on the third. They did not hold on tonic. So the violins are here, and the bass is here. But here's tonic. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is home key, but with the bass here, it makes us feel like wait, something's not, something's not right, something's not done. Yeah, redo. Okay, redo. Yeah. So here we go. So if the tune ended right there, we'd be like, "What's gonna happen that's, next?" Like, that's what? not done. Like, it, it just wouldn't sound right. It's like you. a like a Spanish film. <laughs> All right, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then the whole orchestra drops out, and the soloist just she just does thing. Does her indigenous thing. Does her thing. Yep. So that's a cadenza. She's just getting it right now. Just that tone, just the sound out of that cello. I could not take that bow, the same bow and the same cello and get that sound, I couldn't. That's what's so weird to me about string instruments. Because you think- No, but that's so not, because you could drill. Yep, but you could have the same, you could have the same grapes, you could have the same vineyard, you could have the same whatever. But if, even if you were to leave them to ferment yeah. of their own volition, you would maybe put it in concrete, you would maybe put it in stainless steel, yeah. and that's where, like, the element of pure soul, Yep. like, hashtag this episode all day. Hashtag this episode, hashtag Haydn, hashtag native yeast. All day. So I did want to mention that um, native yeasts also uh, with the, you know, you've got the DAP situation that can alter their 
um, productivity and their yeah. ability to survive. But you can also um, you can use a, a native ferment or indigenous yeast, spontaneous yeast, to ferment your wine. But if you're gonna go and chill the hell out of your wine, yeah. or heat up your wine, if you're going to sulfur the shit out of your wine, pardon, pardon me, I just got really, you know, whatever. Very passionate. Man. And then if you're going to clarify, if you're going to like, or, or fine your wine and take a lot of goodness out of it, basically like send you to boarding school, you know, yep. take, take any of your scrappy nature, take that out because that's <laughs> not good. Um if you're going to do that at the beginning or middle or end of your process, you also are altering the ability for these native yeast to express themselves. So it's, in my opinion, you know, I don't want to tie this into like a greater, you know, dissertation on the benefits of natural wine and why that's better, a better way to make wine. But if you are going to go through the trouble of, relying on those yeasts that are riskier to manage. You have to be cleaner in your cellar. You have to have more knowledge of what's going on usually scientifically to be able to make decisions when things go wrong um, with those ferments uh, to manage them correctly in a way that's not too intrusive. In the end, if you're going to go and do one of the three to four to eight things I mentioned, mm -hmm. it's like how how much are you infringing on your your beginning belief of like you're gonna just rely on these yeast to to start and and sustain the process. So mm -hmm. I don't know, just something to think about when you're thinking about yeast because it's an interesting place. And I didn't even get. I have like so many yeasts. I have like I have on my notes like ones that ones with that deal with fermentative metabolism, <laughs> apiculate yeast, aerobic yeast. But we won't get there because uh, that's for episode. Next. 1.2. Episode next. <laughs> yes, of these yeasts. So. No, it's been amazing. I mean, I, you know, there's always so much to learn about wine. And I feel like you delved into uh, more detail than I was able to. And I appreciate that. To scores and pours and to native yeast and to a very happy birthday in the race. Thank you for listening to episode 10 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan and I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc. <laughs>